The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, Patria Vandermark. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. So, how are things out there? Things are great. It's spring here. The sun's shining. It's warm. People are walking around quite happy. People are riding their bikes. It's very, very nice. Nice. Uh, Go for it. Yeah. On a personal note, I got a photo of my niece this weekend she's one and three quarters years old (laughs) and apparently my brother tells me that he can't seem to get her off of her bike (laughs) (laughs) that has made me so happy i think i'm in a permanently happy mood now getting this adorable photo of her sitting on a tricycle but she also really likes the balance bike which her feet don't even reach the ground yet on uh, but he, my uh, brother and sister-in-law, I guess, have been getting the kids out on their bikes, and and she just loves it. You're, so, your I'm really grin excited is about pretty that. awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's cool. It's cool. From the moment I introduced her to that bike, the first thing she did was ran over and got her helmet. And <sighs> this is back in November, so uh-huh. very very young, and like really just beginning to use words and back in november she could only say a few words and bike was one of them i remember you the saying moment that. She's, yep exactly <laughs> so it's really neat to see that she's just begging to go out on the bike all the time <laughs> very cool oh that's wonderful yeah it's neat how I, are you doing what's going on there in your spring uh well i was gonna actually ask you you know define warm what is what is what is what constitutes warm for you in a place that actually has a real winter Good question. 50, 60. And the birds are chirping. It feels, the sun feels warm. Uh So some of those icy winds have gone away and that helps a lot. Uh, so yeah. I, would, I would say that's yeah. it's okay. properly warm Well, now. I mean, then we're, we're actually having reasonably parallel weather. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like I'm in an alien place anymore. <laughs> Good. So that means that you're not getting rained on constantly. No, we haven't gotten rain in uh, a no i got rained on friday (laughs) so you're still getting it (laughs) it's almost like there's currently a rule for march where it's like if i'm on a bike i'm gonna get rained on at some point uh Mm -hmm. but that was a that was a four-hour ride on my gravel bike and i went out to the coast uh rode my favorite dirt road in the whole wide world willow creek um and you know, it was a, it was a great day. Yes, I got rained on some big fat hairy deal. Um, you know, well, you've proven to us that you know how to deal with the rain, so that's good. Yeah, I mean, the cherry trees are like going off, like you know, mm. mushroom clouds of leaves. You know, pretty leaves, oh, and yeah, that's the best. Uh, all those blooms and everything, and the California poppies are coming up, and Ooh. that's my favorite flower in the whole world. I love that orange. Um, mm. You know. All sorts of stuff is in bloom. Uh, life's good. That's great. That's really good to hear. We have yet to get our blooms here, but you could tell it's about to happen. Uh-huh. And it, it's it's nice. It smells good. Yeah, the birds are chirping. People are happy. Cool. Are you going to need We're to buy antihistamines? Place. No, I'm I'm fine here. It's interesting. I have allergies pretty badly in Colorado, like hay fever. Mm-hmm. And when I moved out to the East Coast, no allergies at all. And I think it's probably because I was born and raised there. So the body has more of an inclination to have those sorts of allergies. Mm -hmm. Whereas here is a foreign environment to my body. So I I, I get along very well here on the East Coast. That's great. Uh, There's there's like a three, four week window that we haven't hit yet where there's some stuff that's going to bloom that will uh, I'll I'll be taking drugs uh, and then it'll pass and it'll be fine. Hmm. Uh, the one okay. problem is like, I'll always stop taking the antihistamine a few days before I should. 
And then I, mm-hmm. I and then you're old. reminded why you shouldn't have. <laughs> right. It's like, okay, we're not there yet. <laughs> <Got it. laughs> yeah. All righty. Well, what what's your pull for today? My pull today is meant to demonstrate things that can go wrong if you don't get your bike serviced and if you don't replace parts when they need to be replaced. This is a perfect topic for spring because it's time for the spring tune-ups and why it is so important to deal with having a spring tune-up. It's not Mm -hmm. just for nice shifting and, and a quiet bike and all those sorts of things. I really hope this does scare you, because there's a certain element of if you're not scared, you might not do something that you should do in order to prevent a catastrophic problem. Mm-hmm. I have a variety of stories here to share. These are from my experiences at the bike shop, personal experiences. But hopefully it helps these items hit home. But over the weekend, I received a phone call from a rider who was stuck on the road. His high quality crank arm snapped at the pedal spindle. Oh. Like clearly snapped off. So the pedal is no longer able to be in the crank arm because it snapped. So considering the generation of this particular crank arm, which I could tell from the photo what it was and how old it probably is, it could potentially have 10 years of riding on it. And we'll say maybe 60,000 miles of wear. Mm-hmm. So well, let's just... Take this back to what if he had 20,000 miles on the crank set? That Mm -hmm. equates to about 4,000 miles per year for five years. Mm -hmm. Just to equate this to an average rider, potentially. Say this rider keeps a 90 RPM cadence. This would translate to 7,200,000 fatigue cycles on the crank arm. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was time for this crank arm to go. It was old. It snapped. You never want to see this stuff happen, but it does. So the, the rider calls asking for a left crank arm, which is which the one that had broken, in order to replace it so he could keep riding. Well, if the left one went, the right one has also experienced <laughs> yeah. the same number of fatigue cycles. <laughs> it's probably ready to go, too. Mm-hmm. So, yes, this rider paid a good sum of money for this crank set, but it is susceptible to fatigue. Mm-hmm. Every part on your bike is susceptible to fatigue. So... You need to think about that. How long have you been riding these parts and what can break over time? At the bike shop, we have found hairline cracks in stem faceplates. We've seen this. We've certainly seen this in crank sets. We've seen all levels of these items fail. So it doesn't mean if you've paid more or less money. And obviously, we know that if you have a heavier part, it's probably made of more material. That could mean it has a longer life It's if it's not the lightest weight part. And a lot of times lightweight parts are meant for racing. And that racing scenario means that the bike and the parts will be replaced more frequently. If it's a pro level rider, you know, these are replaced all the time. But for typical riders, you're not planning on replacing these parts all the time. Yeah. So what was the design intent? But important to think through what could possibly happen. And the miles add up. You're an avid rider. Your miles have added up on all of your bikes. Yeah. I think I think Strava really makes it easier in a lot of these programs. You can keep track of how many miles you have on each bike and how many miles you have on each part. That can certainly help. Yeah. These these the, the years add up. The miles add up. Well, and that's also a really big deal. You know, if you've got more than one bike, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who has one bike knows like, well, oh, yeah, I, I rode 8000 miles last year all on that bike. I'm going to need a lot of maintenance. But if you don't remember, like how many miles were on this bike versus that bike versus that bike, having programmed into, you know, your your settings on Strava, having each of those bikes in there and taking the time to select each bike for each ride. Yeah, you can flip to that page and see exactly how many miles you've done on that bike. Absolutely. Very, very helpful. Yes, it is. And what kind of riding do you do on each bike? A road mm-hmm. bike is going to take less hard wear and tear than your gravel bike or your mountain bike. You may log fewer miles, but those are going to be harder miles that you're putting in. I had a rider over the weekend. And to his credit, he lubes his chain after every single ride. 
but he had 3,300 miles on his chain. So I was very interested in measuring this chain to see how much the chain has worn. And it was done. This chain really needed to go. Fortunately, though, his cassette seemed to be in very good condition. Really? Most. Yeah. Most people are 3,300 miles on a chain. They need to change their cassette, too. Oh, yeah. But it was smooth with a new chain and it was not skipping. But yeah, if you've let your chain go a really long time, you're going to put on a new chain. If you don't change your cassette, it's going to skip all over the place. Yeah. And a skipping chain is dangerous, too. Oh, (laughs) because when your chain Mm -hmm. skips and your pedals let go, you don't have any force against it. You could be thrown off the bike. Creeks. Really important to pay attention to. I'm sure I've mentioned this in previous shows, but I think it's good to put all the stuff together in one place. When your bike is creaking, it means there are parts on your bike that are moving that shouldn't be. It might not be a big deal. A lot of creaks are simply just little clicks, little like the spacers under your stem might need to be looped like that. It could be that sort of small thing. Your skewers on your wheels might need to be looped. Mm -hmm. So it might not be a safety issue at all. However, before most of the crank sets we've seen that have failed fail, they've made a lot of noise. So there has been something to indicate to the rider. Something is not going right. And no one is expecting this, so it may not be something you look at. But cleaning the bike, looking at it very closely, there's going to be a hairline crack that's forming Mm. that gets worse and worse to Mm -hmm. the moment that it fails and hopefully doesn't throw the rider off of the bike. Now, you may have spent the winter sweating on your bike because you had it inside on a trainer. You need to concern yourself with the corrosion of your aluminum bars. And... By doing this, you want to take the tape off the bars and look at them. A lot of times bar tape looks really good. And underneath that bar tape is badly corroded bars. Corroded bars are brittle. They can snap very, very easily. And I have heard of stories from riders who have had their bars break on them. At that point, you really hope your bar tape is really strong so that the bar doesn't break so catastrophically that you completely lose control of the bike. Mm-hmm. But obviously, that's a very dangerous situation to be in. So if your bar tape looks great, and if you spend all winter inside on the trainer, replace the bar tape because you want to get in there and take a look at what's going on under the bar tape. And I would suggest also asking your mechanic, what did the bars look like? Because who knows what level of concern your mechanic has about that? I would ask specifically, what did it look like under there? Or Mm -hmm. ask beforehand before they get in there and just throw on some tape. Really important for safety. Yeah. Stems also fatigue. If you can imagine how many fatigue cycles your stem goes through. I mean, they're holding on wide handlebars that you're cranking on when you're sprinting, when you're working hard. You're putting a lot of load on those bars. The stem is holding it all together. These do a lot of work to keep the bike together and their fatigue fatigue cycles are numerous stem bolts hold the stem together guess what they're doing a lot of work too seen a lot of rusty bolts and bolts can break it also depends on how nicely they've been tightened over time if a Mm -hmm. bolt has been Mm -hmm. over tightened over and over again that bolt can break much more easily i used to ride for a team in colorado and one of my teammates was riding with a two bolt stem So this is where on the faceplate you see two bolts instead of four bolts. Mm -hmm. Most stems now have four bolts on the front, but there are still plenty of two bolt stems in the world. In fact, I removed one from a rider's bike last week. One of his two bolts broke. Of course, that meant the the second bolt also broke when the first one went and it threw him off of the bike and he was killed. This was a young, a young man with young children. And his Ugh. his bolt broke. You can imagine how many people on the team at that point ran out and got four bolt stems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The whole team. But does it take someone being killed that you know to make you put on a four bolt stem? No. And if you have a two bolt stem, that's an old stem. Yeah. You need to run thing. out and <laughs> change it right now. Here's another one. Your cleats. Every single spring, I see a pile of road cleats that are so badly worn. Mm -hmm. Some of them, there's almost no cleat left. Replace these without thinking twice. They are very inexpensive. And worn cleats do not keep your foot connected to your pedal. 
if you're expecting your foot to stay connected to your pedal and it comes detached, you are in a very dangerous situation. I know a rider who was in a town line sprint with his friends just out having fun. It wasn't a race situation or anything like that. They're having fun. He was using a very worn cleat and it popped out of his pedal and it threw him on the ground, broke his collarbone, uh, punctured a lung. He ended up in the hospital for a while. It was it was a really it was a sad situation. He was off the bike for months and they couldn't do surgery on his collarbone because he wasn't stable because of the lung. Oh, wow. so his collarbone never healed properly because they couldn't fix it surgically, which is they really needed to do. But that wasn't safe for him. So that was I mean, it could have changed could have changed the cleats that would never have been an issue. Yeah. But that was a really bad situation. And I certainly see so many of these worn cleats. You should take a look at your cleats after listening to this podcast. Just look at the bottom of your shoes. What you, what do you have going on there? And also notice how easy it is to clip in and out of your mm-hmm. pedals. Mm-hmm. That's just a good thing to evaluate. You might be clipping out much sooner than you should be able to. Mountain bikes, sometimes people set those looser. You've got a variety of cleats and shoes. You know, you could be like me where you have three pairs of winter boots and, and <laughs> two to three pairs of road shoes. You, you've got a lot of different equipment working with the same pedals. So take a look at everything and just do a full inventory of what it is you're using. If yeah. anything looks looks worn, just replace it. We're talking a few bucks compared to months in a hospital, not being able to work worse. You know, you might not make it through the crash. Well, you know, I mean, road rash is argument enough. All you need is to lose some skin and you're going to go, oh, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, yeah. um, you know, one thing I'll mention is that with look, uh, the way those cleats wear often, you know, the, the, the toe of the cleat will be reasonably fine, but it's the back of the cleat that the hinge actually, you know, the gate opens and then clamps onto that. And I've seen those, um, those rip apart. And so they'll, they'll look like, well, it's okay ish. And, (laughs) uh, yeah, you, you will get just from walking on those cleats, you'll get a lot of wear there. That's one of the neat things about Shimano's pedals. Now, the way they have those little standoffs so that you can't be wearing away on that part. Um, mm-hmm. you know, by the time you've worn those down, it's a pretty clear indicator that, well, I should get new cleats and you haven't done anything that wears away at the cleat in a way, uh, that will make it more dangerous for you. So one argument right. for Shimano pedals. Yeah. 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 And the rider that I'm talking about in this particular situation who was thrown off of his bike was wearing look pedals mm. and cleats. Yeah. So. Yeah, but it certainly happens to everyone where I've seen the Shimano pedals wear down or the cleats wear down to near nearly nothing. In yeah, fact, not it was interesting. Yeah. If you're not looking for it, the rider came in with these almost non-existent cleats saying that he couldn't get into the pedals. So that was good because <laughs> that was his indication that he needed to change it better that you couldn't get into them in the first place than mm-hmm. to think you're in when you're really not. Oh, if you're on speed play pedals, these can get stuck together where you are stuck in your bike if they get dirty. So speed play pedals and cleats, uh, I'm talking about the Zeros and the X1X2s. They mm-hmm. have this style where if there's dirt in the cleats, you could become stuck. Uh, I've been stuck a couple different times in in speed play pedals and and cleats in the in the past i used to race with them uh really bad situations where i i was in the middle of a really busy road just almost a highway i was trying to make a left-hand turn i couldn't get out of my pedal i i didn't know what to do and all of a sudden most people only know how to get out of their pedals on one side i was a i'm a, a left clicker outer person i had to figure out in 10 seconds how to get out on the right side without falling over. And in mm. the middle of a highway, you really don't want to fall over. Usually it's just an ego problem. Like you fall over and you look silly to a lot of people. But in that sort of situation, that's, that could be very dangerous if you have to fall over in front of traffic. Yeah. Yeah. That's never good. <laughs> no. So according to speed play, you should use white lightning to that is their keep, preference. 
yep. those cleats looped. But uh, yeah, don't let them get to the point of getting that dirty so that you don't get stuck. Don't get stuck. It's definitely worth mentioning if you're getting into gravel riding, just change those pedals and cleats over on your bike or on your new bike. If you're getting a gravel bike, use Shimano mountain pedals. So yeah. easy to get in and out of. Just no problem at all. And there's also a tension setting on those pedals and cleats. So, or on the pedals themselves, so that if you're a lighter rider, you can get in and out easily. You can tighten it up. If you're a heavier rider, you can stay in. Yeah. Oh, years ago, I purchased a road bike from a friend. And I think there's a number of people out there who buy used bikes or used equipment. So this was my purchasing a very nice bike. Uh, from from a friend and i didn't think to ask anything any questions i the, the bike seemed to fit well enough so i took it i didn't ask about its service life or anything and i should have asked how many miles were on the tires i should have asked how the tires were set up on the bike i didn't inspect it didn't take it to a bike shop none of that stuff in fact there was a big trip coming up and my carbon bike at the time had a had had cracked chain stays so that oh. frame was out for the frame replacement, and I didn't want to miss it this riding trip with, with friends. So that's where I get this bike, and hey, I got to get on it and go. Well, I had been doing a big ride up and down Lookout Mountain, if you know the, the Denver Golden area. Mm -hmm. I had just come down from Lookout, where there's lots of switchbacks and everything else. It's a, it's a really fun descent at very high speeds. And all of a sudden, my front tire blew out on this bike. Mm. And when your front tire blows out, it is frightening. You think you would have control of your bike and that you could steer it in some way. There was no steering ability at all. I had no control of this bike. And I was just waiting. And I, of course, time slows down and all those things happen. Just waiting for the rim to hit the road and wipe out. Because that's what happens when it's the second that metal hits the ground. Fortunately, the tires were big enough it, and the tires stayed on the rim that I was able to ride it out without hitting the ground. But that happened so quickly. If I had been descending lookout when that happened, I hate to say what would have happened. And why did it blow out? Well, it turns out the, the tire was old and dry rotted. Yeah. I, couldn't tell if I had maybe spent a long time looking at the tire. Maybe I would have noticed. But I think I was a pretty average cyclist at that time. I raced a lot. I spent a lot of time on the bike, but I didn't know mm -hmm. as a mechanic knows how to look at a tire and, and what to be suspicious of. It also turned out that the tire was set up tubelessly. So what, there wasn't even a tube inside the tire that it was just a very thin wall. And when it blew, that's that was it. So there wasn't mm. any safety mechanism at all. Mm hmm built into that and i couldn't change it i couldn't do anything about it fortunately it wasn't too far from a bike shop and took it in but that could have been a really bad situation and that's just from not changing the tires i had a used bike i should have changed every part on that bike that was related to safety why not get a new set of handlebars why not get a new stem why not put on new tires and have those wheels very carefully inspected was all of those things are directly related to your life. <sighs> no, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like to make it, it's, it's just really important to put it in proper perspective. I think the bike riding is one of the safer things you can do. But oh, yeah, there's a lot of ways that you can be put, putting yourself in in harm's way. Carbon forks, that's another one. Carbon forks fatigue. And most fork makers have a five-year warranty on their forks. It's certainly worth checking to see what a warranty is. A, a manufacturer can stand behind their product for as long as their warranty states. Now, there are some exceptions to this. I'll talk about that in a moment. But I have definitely heard of forks breaking under riders. Um, and then the, the last story I heard was a couple of weeks ago, someone told me about his fork that broke. It was a 15-year-old fork. It was an old road fork not not a, i mean made by a trusted fork builder but it was 15 years old and he was riding had no notice and the fork broke from underneath him he's a very tall person and fortunately he got away with road rash and and was okay but oh, when you hear stories of what happens when a fork breaks you typically hear about riders losing teeth and and having face facial damage 
five years after five years, it's not a bad idea to get your fork replaced. Obviously, you know how heavy you are, what kind of what kind of work you've asked your bike to do over this time. But after five years, it really is. It's, it's kind of a responsible thing of a bike shop to suggest that you replace your fork because it is such a critical item to to your safety. And if you're sourcing a fork from some unknown company overseas, it's anyone's guess as to how well it's been made. Um, and there's, I think a U.S. builder is going to be much more concerned about liability, hopefully because they care about the health of riders, but also I mean, liability is a bigger concern here. Even the, a, a builder could be sued and that's a really serious situation. If it's an overseas company, they may not be concerned about that sort of thing. So they may be going in with, with different motivations. It's just it's just not worth making any assumptions about your equipment. Now, on the frame, a lot of frames do have lifetime warranties. Now, it doesn't always mean, though, that the manufacturer intends for the frame to last a lifetime. I feel like this one, definitely, there's some exceptions to this. For one, it might cost the manufacturer very little to replace the frame if it's stamped out of a mold overseas. Like The, the cost of a carbon frame is more the mold building less creation of each individual frame. So it's easier for a carbon frame builder to offer a lifetime warranty, even though they may expect that after 10 years or something like that, or even five, a frame could break or have a crack form. So you can't get on, say, a carbon frame and expect it to last your lifetime. The manufacturer may just be assuming that, well, most bikes are either sold or a lot of bikes are not even that well ridden. So a bike will last longer. Sure. It, not everyone out there in the world is the avid cyclist that most of the people who are listening to this show are. It would be interesting to see what average mileage is per year or number of hours per year is among the listeners of this show. I mean, I'm sure it's, yeah. it's really much higher than average. Most people who own a bike are putting very few hours on the bike a year. So the total accumulated lifetime of this bike in terms of numbers of hours being ridden isn't that great necessarily. So that that's another something to consider. If you're riding a material that has the ability to fatigue, assume it well. And it just come from the perspective of if something could go wrong, it will. How bad is that? Is that a, is that a problem? Is that a safety concern? Because there's a lot there of things. There are only sir. a few things that can break that could result in your death. You know, the bar, right. the stem, pedal spindle, crank arm, seat, seat post. Those are the only ones that, you know, just that one thing breaking, you could wind up done. Right. Um, yeah. So like rear tire. <laughs> I'm not as concerned about a rear tire. If like, yeah, if it blows out, that's a bummer. But you probably come to a skidding stop, but it's not throwing you off the bike. It's not landing you headfirst into the pavement. Yeah. I know. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of things that you are, are less of a concern. But try to be overly cautious. And you, you're riding with a friend who has a noise on the bike. Find out why there's a noise on the bike. <laughs> almost. Yes. And it, especially if you can hear it, it's that loud. There's something that needs to be remedied in some way that will at least make the ride better or not result in a mechanical because of course there's the well this mechanical just stopped the ride and it made it less pleasant or it's it's a more catastrophic failure right you know something i'll add is that the the materials being used and the engineering going into frames and forks today is so much better. Oh, we're talking carbon fiber. It's yeah. so much better than where we were 20 years ago or 25 years ago that it it is possible to have a lot more faith in a carbon fiber frame or fork today than in the past. Uh, something we've all seen is how frames have gotten stiffer. Well, the stiffer the frame is, the less you're getting actual fatigue cycles. Um, so, You've got to you've got to flex carbon fiber a pretty fair amount to begin actually breaking individual fibers. That's what fatigue is. If you haven't mm -hmm. broken fibers, you haven't actually fatigued the part. Now, an easy way to consider whether or not you've got something you need to look at more more thoroughly or just think about flat out replacing. If you've got a bike that still has a quill stem on it, 
that is not the ahead style. Uh, and you've got a carbon fiber fork. Just, you know, unless it's the the bike that you ride on Sundays only or something like that, it's your old antique, whatever. If you're putting regular miles on a bike with a quill stem and a carbon fiber fork, replace the fork now. Just just do it. Yes, Those old absolutely. Kestrels, they were great forks. The old times, <laughs> they were nice forks. Uh, I've done plenty of miles on them. But at this point, I mean, some of them, even just uh, uh, the, the resin's been damaged by uh, UV light. Uh, so, yeah, it, when you start getting upwards of 15 or 20 years on a part, um, it's a pretty safe bet to say, OK, we we need to do something about this. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I found out that fork story from a friend. The two friends had bought their bikes at the same time. The one friend had had his fork break. So he told his friend, you need to replace the fork. <laughs> so that's why we ended up with the bike, because he told the friend, hey, this is really something that caused me a problem. You should get this remedied. And he wouldn't have necessarily known to bring the bike in. I don't think right. he would have thought about it. Like, you don't. You don't think about something. It's not, it's not broken. Nothing seems to be wrong. You don't see that. You don't see fatigue. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Um, but white corrosion on an aluminum bar. Uh, yeah, you or do see that. Seat post. <laughs> yes, yeah. you see it. Yep. It's yeah. absolutely true. It's very visible. You could see that stuff. Yeah. I'm sure you have a few stories that you've heard through. I've broken a bar. I've broken a stem. Oh, you know, one of the other things that I should mention, you know, back to an earlier point of yours, uh, because we've got, you know, so many racing parts are so much lighter than they used to be. One of the reasons that that has happened the way it has is because, or, or one of the ways that manufacturers have allowed themselves uh, to pursue that is because bike shops across the country all have torque wrenches and they all look at the torque spec. And when you're using torque wrenches and not just like, Oh, give it another quarter turn. I mean, I once worked for a cross country ski area that had a mountain bike fleet and I had a boss who told me, well, you're the bike mechanic, so you're going to be the one taking care of all of our rental bike fleet. Uh, every morning, I want you to tighten each bolt one quarter turn. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> and I, I, I had to go to him. I was like, no, no. Uh -huh. And he's like, well, just do that for me. And I, I kept doing it until finally one bolt had twisted off. And I was like, Mark, see, this is what I told you. I can't do that. We've checked all the bikes. They're in good shape. I'm willing to look a bike over once it's been out for a ride. But no, we can't just keep twisting each bolt one quarter turn. That's insane. So, right, yeah, there's right. stretching it yeah. until it breaks. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's little this there's little that's happened to me on a bike uh, that has been scarier than having one bolt and a two bolt stem break mm -hmm. uh, or have uh, a bar break, you know, outside of the stem. I, you know, I mean, it was, uh, it was in, uh, if my hands were on the bar top, it was inside of my hand. So, I mean, there was next to nothing left to grab onto. Wow. Uh, and I was on, this was a gravel bike. Uh, I was in the middle of a descent um, center punched a rock. And I heard this earth shattering kaboom. Uh, I wondered where Martian Mar Marvin Martian was, um, but I could, I could feel instantly. Now here's another thing about the way engineering is done now. So manufacturers are putting in layers of carbon that are oriented 90 or a hundred and uh, yeah, usually 45 or 90 degrees uh, relative to the, to the primary load bearing uh, layers so that the, part won't just completely snap in half. And so I felt the bar get soft. Mm -hmm. I knew what that meant. I pulled all my weight uh, off of that side, made sure all my weight was resting on the right side, not the left, but I could still hold on to the drop and squeeze the brake lever provided I wasn't waiting it at all. And that way I could get slowed down. Still, I had another 500-ish feet of descending to do to get home. Oh, there was goodness. no way out. I mean, I was up, I was up in Annadale, had to get home. Uh, 
didn't have time to walk all the way home because I was going to have to get my boys from school. So it was like, well, this will be lively. And it was. <laughs> um, yeah. So Easy if you are doing some, uh, some maintenance on your own bike, you know, this would be another occasion to say, hey, get a torque wrench if you don't already. Right. Yeah. Yep. It's very important. You don't. And there's so many inexpensive ones now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And also the way levers are placed on bars that you'll notice mm-hmm. that if your bike turns over or falls over, say when Gus grabs it or something, it falls over, your lever will turn in. That's because the lever has been properly attached to the bars. It shouldn't be over tightened. If it's <laughs> over tightened, then your lever breaks your bar when the bike tips over. So you don't want it to be too tight. You want to have that room for movement. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of lot of little details like that. Things you can't see are in the buried in the bike. But yes, very very important. Oh, I've had a pedal break off of a spindle, <gasps> and I've mm. heard others of the same pedal type have their pedal break off. And some people were going downhill and doing some crazy cornering when it happened. I I was lucky. I I, I had it happen when I was riding on the flat. And trying to get home for 30 miles of like kicking on this spindle because that's all that was left Mm -hmm. Uh, wasn't a lot of fun. But (laughs) luckily, that wasn't a safety concern. But I have heard of other people who've had that happen. And that's not that's not a good situation. I've had I've had crank arms loosen, but Mm -hmm. not not anything snap off or anything like that. That was just Mm -hmm. super ultra frustrating uh, because in one case, the old ISIS drive, man. If that started to loosen up, hmm. uh, y- you very quickly uh, damaged the inside of the crank arm so that you could never fully get it tightened again. Oh, that is frustrating. Yeah. No. Yeah. So. All righty. Well, we're going to take a break and we will be back in just a minute. The Cycling Independent, which produces the Pace Line, is undertaking our first ever subscriber drive. The three of us who founded the Cycling Independent did not set out on this adventure to do subscriber drives. But as it turns out, this is the only way for any of us to be able to eat food or retain shelter. So here we are asking you to subscribe. Here's why it's worth your while. Number one, we put out good stuff. Features, essays, reviews, podcasts, etc. We make it all ourselves and we'll make more every day. Two, each of us has a track record of quality work and honesty. You can count on us to do our part. When you do yours. Three, our main goal is to grow an independent community of cyclists, people who are dedicated to riding as much as possible and also getting as many other people as possible on a bike for the better of our own lives, our families, our towns, and even our planet. Four, more subscribers means we can bring more voices, more diverse voices, and better content to this little game of ours. They say a marketing effort shouldn't use negative words, that you should avoid words like don't and shouldn't and won't. But what we don't do is also part of our value to you. Number one, we don't plant cookies on your machine and then use them to serve you targeted ads from paying third parties. Two, we don't fling advertising at you every time you click on a story or link. Three, We don't accept money from companies trying to get positive press. And so when we recommend something, we do it freely and based on our real world experience. Four, we are not a monolithic publishing company channeling eyeballs into campaigns unrelated to cycling or channeling dollars into politics or other causes, not bike specific, that might not jibe with your views. We are about the bike and riding and bringing people together and of story. So this is it. We aim to add 300 subscribers in the month of March, 300 new contributors to the project. Join us. It will be worth it. We promise. Okay. We're back with the pace line, the podcast in two wheels time for my poll. So I want to talk about an issue of aging that everyone needs to be thinking about regardless of whether they are say 35 or 65. It's how bike fit can affect aging. I bring this up because in the last couple of weeks, I've been out on the road and I've encountered other riders 
who took a hand off the bar to shake it and get some feeling back in their hand or twisted their head around to alleviate a neck crick, things like that. I've just seen little things here and there as I've been encountering other people on the road. And the thing is, I've got enough experience and fit and well, just being a cyclist that I see those things. And I was like, I know that that's a symptom of bike fit that isn't optimal. That's mm-hmm. not to say it's not a good fit, but it is one that lacks the necessary balance necessary to prevent that from happening. Um, I, I, okay. My bona fides, uh, I'm going to back up and say mm-hmm. that I've got a deep backgrounded fit. Okay. I was certified in the fit kit back in 1992, the Serata size cycle in 1996, later went to specialized SBCU when they got that going. And I even went on to uh, help write some of the early educational materials for retool. Um, So I know this stuff. That's a full swath. Thanks. Uh, I'm also going to say that I've got entirely too much experience with bad fit. Mm. I spent at one point in time, I thought, let's see what other people are doing in terms of fit. And I decided, well, I'll be the guinea pig, you know. Put the des- test dummy sticker on me. Uh, that was a bad idea. <laughs> it really was. It did not serve me well. And I will regret that for uh, however long my heart keeps beating. Hmm. Um, yeah. So I spent about five years allowing alleged bike fit experts put me in positions that weren't good for me. And in some situations on bikes, just not even a bad fit, but a bike that I shouldn't have been on. The upshot is that some of those overly aggressive fits caused my spine and particularly my neck to age prematurely. So I've got, I've mentioned this before, I've got spinal stenosis. Um, So thinning of the discs in my neck, and that causes uh, some nerves to get pinched. Um, You know, in all honesty, I mean, aging just doesn't work out well for anyone in the long run. Uh, It's like Fight Club on a timeline long enough, everyone's survival rate goes to zero. Uh, so I get that spinal stenosis was something that was pretty likely to happen to me at some point, but given what I've had, uh, doctors tell me about the aging of my neck, had I had a less aggressive fit, my neck wouldn't look this aged to them. So this wasn't inevitable. Uh, well, it was inevitable at some point. It wasn't inevitable at this point in time. So there are a couple of questions that riders would do well to ask themselves. Um, if someone is experiencing numbness or pain, uh, that the, the pain will, if it's nerve pain, it'll feel like burning or stabbing. Um, those are all nerve issues. Uh, nerves are either being pinched um, or circulation's being cut off because the body is struggling to hold that position. Um, so yeah, numbness can come from either a pinched nerve or just poor circulation. Either way, the nerve's not getting what it needs. So yeah, you're getting numbness. In my situation, it's a matter of me spending years riding in a position that was just way too stretched out and low. Uh I will grant a really low upper body is crazy arrow. If you drop your bar by five centimeters, you can actually feel how much faster that position is. There's no doubt. But it also changed the handling of the bike. And, uh, you know, sooner or later, some part of your body is going to go, can we talk? Uh, (laughs) If holding a position results in a rider locking their elbows, there's already, you can just say there's a problem with that position. Uh, One of the things that I would always ask people when I was fitting them was like, well, do you spend any time in the drops other than on a descent? Um, and if I heard something like, well, if I'm sprinting, well, the bar is too low. If you're not willing to just ride around in the drops, your bar is too low. Um, so something to consider, say your hands go numb. There's a high probability that the position is too aggressive. Uh, moving around more can be helpful, but ultimately sitting up some is probably what's called for. Uh, That doesn't mean riding around on your bar tops all day, but if riding around on your your bar tops all day is what keeps you from getting numbness, there again, the position's too aggressive. 
Um, and I'll, you know, I'm going to own this. Like I get that nobody wants to be less arrow. Okay. Nobody goes around saying, I, you know, I think I really do want to be less arrow. I get that. That's not a thing. Um, and if some, if someone's thing is racing half hour crits, they can probably get away with that position for a few more years, but it's always that pesky, butt, isn't it? Uh, if a rider's goals include gravel events, centuries, fondos, that sort of thing, then their position really needs to be looked at. The big problem is the potential for less lasting nerve damage. You think about anyone you know who got carpal tunnel syndrome from using a mouse. I've heard that that surgery is exactly zero fun. Uh, I, I'm, I'm so grateful that it's never happened to me. Um, so the thing about fit is that the goal most properly is for a position that is optimal. Um, this is something that I was really uh, taught by Scott Holtz at Specialized. Um, his point was that, sure, you can always make a position more arrow, but if you can't generate any power, that's no good. Or if your hands end up numb after 20 minutes of riding and you end up riding on your bar tops, how useful is that position? Ideally, the position is no higher than necessary. You still need weight on that front wheel, okay? Uh, but it should allow you to ride for a couple of hours with no pain. Now, yeah. You sell nothing but custom bikes all day long, which means that you don't ever have to sacrifice someone's fit when they're buying a bike from you. Exactly. What else would you add? Uh, I think I think you're right on all points. I would say that we don't we don't usually talk about aero because I don't I don't work with racers all that often. Mm -hmm. More very avid riders. And I don't feel that aerodynamics is something that really comes to mind to people. So it's not part of the conversation more. It's the what position am I going to be comfortable in for six hours? Like I want to be happy <laughs> on my bike for a long time. And I, I really feel it has so much to do with absolutely you want to be high enough on the bars. Well, mm -hmm. high enough, in enough. Is it for the what you're doing? Is it road riding or gravel riding? These are different positions. And we've certainly talked about that before. But having the rider feedback during the fit is one of the most important things you can do. A rider knows when the rider feels there's hand pressure. And typically during a fit, what we'll try to do is find the optimal spot, but go beyond that and see if you get any better or not like you can feel that. And what's nice is when you can change a fit bike around really mm -hmm. easily. When you hit that spot, the rider always knows it. And you can see as a fitter, yeah, all the angles are proper. Like there's a 90 degree angle between your arm and your and your back. You know, those mm -hmm. sorts of angles and your your knee angle when the pedal is extended. Like those angles need to be right. But beyond that, it's how much is that back folded over? And that is so much has to do with the, the strength of a rider's core. You know, the, mm -hmm. the riders who can bend over further are taller. They can bend more. A shorter rider just doesn't have the ability to bend. So their handlebars are going to be up higher. They're going to have less of a differential. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and the rider always knows it during that fit. How much weight is on those hands? You just know when there's, when there's an enough, but not too much. And you're yeah. right about the enough part. And that is if you go too high, you don't have weight on the front wheel and the bike isn't going to handle well. So you do have to strike a happy place. And it is a little tricky because inside the fit is going to feel different than outside. Mm -hmm. A fit inside a rider is going to want to be a little bit more upright. Once you go out, that can change a little bit by we're talking maybe a centimeter. But the road feel outside is different than than what you feel inside during the fitting. Yeah, that's that is one of the really interesting things is uh, it, you actually, you actually need to get out on a bike and ride it and feel, um, how it handles and, uh, that position. Yeah. Uh, it, it'll inform some of your sense of what the bike's doing that, um, it's subtle, but it's certainly noticeable every single time. Yeah. yeah. It's worth mentioning that just modern, uh, brifters are so much more ergo than the older ones the mm -hmm. older handlebar styles tended to dip down and then the rifters would 
turn up. So that puts really unnatural pressure on people's hands. It's just not as ergonomic. And that really encourages hand numbness, where a lot of times our problems are fixed just by putting on the, the modern handlebar with with a shorter reach. So mm-hmm. the reach of the bar itself, like typically 70 millimeters or 80 millimeters, I put on a 70 millimeter bar and with just that shape and a modern lever, you're good to go. So that, that'll definitely take care of a lot of hand numbness. Yeah. You know, one of the other really interesting things is if somebody's had a bike for a number of years and say they go from uh, the old 10 speed Durace uh, or 10 speed uh, Campagnolo record or chorus, you know, one of those and they go with a, a, a new group, that lever body is a good deal longer, uh, mm-hmm. generally at least a centimeter, sometimes even more. Uh, and so that can really affect fit in terms of, you know, yeah, a shorter reach bar is one way to go. I really like to see people shorten the stem. I'm not a big fan of short reach and short drop bars. Uh, my friend, uh, product manager, Dave Kiesel always jokes like, oh yeah, you know, a bike with three positions that are all the same. Um, I liked deeper drop bars, but the point was, you know, you get the, the you get your drop position set and what that means is that your, your, uh, your bar tops are going to be higher. Yeah. That increased uh, difference between the two means you get to set up even higher when you're on the bar tops. But yeah, as people are swapping parts, um, you know, one of the things that really has to be looked at is the way that that uh, those longer lever bodies uh, change what your, what your actual reach is. Um, it's nice when I see a fitter who actually measures the distance um, to the upturn in the lever body, as Mm -hmm. opposed to just to the end of the bar. Um, You know, and then you've got the fact that like you could have a current bike. And if you switched from SRAM to Shimano, that alone can be a centimeter different. Yeah. Right. Right. It definitely has some differences there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, yeah, switching out a bar is one, one good way of doing that. Uh, so, you know, most of the bars at this point are pretty short reach and pretty short drop. And right. that makes me crazy. Yeah, we almost put all all riders on compact bars. It's it's rare to find someone who wants a deeper drop. And that's almost always really tall riders or people with really big hands, which typically goes together. It's a tall rider who, yeah. who will want that deeper drop. But I, again, our riders aren't really looking to that drop position for much of anything. It's a different position, but if it's so good on the tops, like if your hands really sit comfortably on the hoods, you don't really have such a desire or need to be changing positions. Again, you know, well, my philosophy as a fitter was always, I fitted somebody in their drops first. That was the first position I fit for because so often I was seeing guys who like, yeah, they were only going to use the drops for a sprint or for a descent. And otherwise they weren't there at all. And it's like, let's get those drops up high enough that you're willing to just ride around in them. And if the drops are comfortable, then the hoods and the bar top are going to be super comfortable. Yeah. I, I see why you're doing that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I guess it's, it is one of those things that was just your approach to the, where, where are you trying to hit optimally? Yeah. Well, you know, let's, let's just, you've got three positions. I don't yeah. know. Let's make them all really useful. <laughs> <laughs> Call me crazy. Uh, you, you wouldn't be the first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I mean, that is something that, you know, anybody can walk into a fitting and say, Hey, what if we fit me for my position in the drops first? Yep. You know, I, I mean, most fitters I see, they start with the levers. Right. So. Yeah. Um, just a little philosophy thing. Yeah. Uh, we'll be thinking about that the next time we do a fit. <laughs> It'll yeah. be in the back of my head. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, let's move on to pace line picks. What do you have this week? My pick this week goes along with safety and just trying to uh, do everything as, as uh, really trying to be Try to be uh, safe, I guess. I'm trying to find a better word. I'm coming up with a blank. The road ID identification. I think mm. most people have heard of road ID. These are either wristbands or a necklace around your neck 
Um, when a paramedic finds a rider or a person, I mean, this could be useful if you're in a car accident and someone were to find you. Paramedics will look on your wrist and around your neck for identification. It will sometimes take a long time before they're able to identify, like, find a wallet, especially Mm -hmm. if it's a neck injury or something, wallets in the back pocket. It could take some time to fish around and and find that that information. So on the, the road ID, it's got your name, names and phone numbers, contact info of loved ones who you would want to have contacted if you were to be found unconscious or who knows why you might need this information. I find it's very handy because my husband's phone number is on it. And because we have cell phones and cell phones are now in phones, it's a it's a handy reminder of of the phone number. Um, mm-hmm. If the phone's not working, so it you don't have to have a, a catastrophic incident to need to have this information on you. It's just peace of mind. If you're to be found, you know your loved ones would be able to be contacted immediately in a place mm-hmm. where a paramedic would find it. These are forty dollars for a basic wristband. I, I wear a Whoop, and I have a nice little extra road ID. Um, what do you call it? That item that goes on the strap of mm-hmm. of the whoop, um, or you could just have a strap that's that's all it is is the road ID. And I started wearing this. It was a it was a gift from a friend, and he had given me a a gift certificate to purchase one. And of course, as like usual, I'll take my time because I'm busy. Blah blah blah. And uh, a customer was out riding and was hit, hit by a car, and he was found. <laughs> And he didn't have an identification easily findable. It was hours before they fished out his wallet in the hospital and called his wife. So after I heard that story, I started wearing uh, the road ID. And it's great. Really comfortable. Peace of mind. It's it's a it's a very nice addition to to have on you. And I see a lot of people wearing these now, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is great because it's any activity. Again, it could be driving your car, riding your bike, walking on the street just good to be able to be identified and there's also ability for you to say if you had many allergies if there's something the paramedic shouldn't administer and if you have a long medical history you can put that online and they can access that very quickly yeah when i got my first uh it wasn't from road id but when i got my first tag some years back you know the there were fields for your address and it's like well that's not exactly useful. So what I did and said was I had put Kaiser Permanente and then my Kaiser number. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, hopefully, you know, they'll see that and they'll take me to a Kaiser hospital and to, instead of a Sutter one where I'm going to be charged tens of thousands of dollars for being out of network. Um, you know, I'm fortunate I've never been carted anywhere unconscious. Uh, <laughs> I, I've had one or two incidents where I kind of wished I was unconscious, but that was another matter entirely. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Uh, that right. had to do with like the lack of morphine at that point in time. Uh, yeah. Ugh. Yeah. And it could be handy for a friend who needs to, who knows, someone needs to yeah. call your loved one for whatever reason. There yeah. you go. You got the yeah. info. And Road ID is like a great organization. Uh, it's really easy to order one. It comes in really quickly. They make quickly. a lot of different versions now. So, you know, depending on what your need is, uh, yeah, they've got a lot of different opportunities for you to have something handy. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, my mm-hmm. pick is related. My pull as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the event that you are getting nerve pain, treating said pain in the course of a ride can make the difference between finishing the ride in pain or not even finishing the ride at all. I've never quit anything because of my neck, but there have been a few times when I was a little close to that. <laughs> um, it, it can the pain can really be bad. It can feel like an ice pick is in my shoulder. Um, a heated ice pick at that. Yeah. Um, but what has made a notable difference for me in my comfort has been CBD creams. Uh, the other big active, uh, ingredient in cannabis. So look, I know that people are saying that CBD cures cancer, raises IQ and can help a flat earther fly to the moon. But one thing that CBD does address better than nearly everything else out there is to neutralize nerve pain. Um, And I'll even grant that I've become a connoisseur of CBD creams the way some of my friends are connoisseurs of weed. Uh, I've tried everyone that I can get my hands on. 
And there is one that I like best of all. It's actually from Floyd's of Leadville. They've got a transdermal cream that penetrates better than anything else I've used. Uh, and that's the thing that, you know, nerve pain is not a topical thing generally. Um, it's, you know, it needs to be able to penetrate some down into your skin. Mm-hmm. So I'll take one little squirt of it from the pump bottle, sometimes only a half a squirt, put it on my finger and rub it in a full squirt from the Floyd's, uh, pump bottle is 12 milligrams of CBD. So a half will be about six. And in five or 10 minutes, I'm feeling noticeably better. Uh, I'll put on a small amount and I'll put a small amount in a little bitty pop top container that will fit in a Jersey. And I'll take that with me when I'm doing longer events uh, or, you know, stick it in my hydration pack. If I'm doing something like a long grasshopper Uh, two years ago, when I did unbound, formerly DK 200. Uh, I took that with me and uh, I've used it there. I've used it grasshoppers. It's proven to be, it, it can affect the quality of my day. Not being in pain improves a day for me uh, rather dramatically as it turns out. Yeah. Well, that's neat that it works that quickly. Yeah. And I mean, it, it does a better job in terms of lasting at mm. the way it addresses pain than a lot of other things I've used. Um, so they have a little 350 milligram bottle that'll fit in a Jersey pocket. Uh, I've been meaning to pick one of those up. Um, I've got the 1200 milligram bottle, which is, uh, well, you know, a little bigger, bigger around than a broom handle and maybe, uh, what, three and a half, four inches uh, tall. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the, yeah, the 350 goes for $14.99. The 1,200-milligram bottle goes for $69.99. They also do a carton of 24 individual served packets, uh, each with 50 milligrams of cream. Um, you know, it seems like a really great thing, but for, for my need, just addressing a pinpoint of pain, it's way overkill. You end up with a lot of leftover cream. Yeah. If you're doing a massage a and you need to address a bigger area, that's when those packets are are really a good deal more useful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's great that they offer that. Yeah. So, of course, there'll be uh, links in our show notes if you want to check that stuff out. Yeah. I, and as a side note, I've used the CBD drops from Floyd's of Leadville and a couple other companies as well, just for recovering after big training sessions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it was very helpful. It, nothing scientific, but my experience was that it definitely helped. And it would sleep yeah. better and feel more refreshed on the other side of a really hard workout. Yeah. Uh, in the event that I've done something long and I'm in a lot of pain afterwards, sure, I'm using cream, but I will often do uh, a CBD gel cap uh, that will address things a, a, a little more forcefully, let's say. Hmm. Um, and yeah, they, um, they don't hurt sleep at all. Yes. Right. And that's something we all need help our yeah. bodies help ourselves. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I didn't do that the other night and, uh, woke up three times during mm. the night because my legs ached. Um, <laughs> wow. Having well, done the longest crime I've it. done in a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, mm. Okay. Yeah. I forgot to do that. Okay. Well done. Some um, people never learn, <laughs> but it was fun I, in the process. I do, right? but it takes me, I don't know, 40 or 45 times. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Just keep doing that. <laughs> yeah. Someday I'll um, learn. You know, is this the place where I say, don't do as I do, do as I say? Right, right. Uh, exactly. I think we all do to a certain extent. <laughs> oh, well, that's a wrap on another episode of The Pace Line. Um, uh, we've got what two more episodes? Uh, you I'm and me, certain. I was thinking or, it maybe only be one more. March oh, is almost. Yeah. yeah. March we don't is have much left. wrapping up. Yeah. One more after this. Oh no. Yeah, everyone's Ooh. been so sweet. I've gotten lots of nice notes from people. Um, we've had a lot of neat comments in the show notes, and uh, I've re- received personally some notes from from people. It's been really neat to see who's been listening. Some pr- surprises. <laughs> Uh, of who who's been out there listening, and I know there's a lot more of you out there who who aren't saying anything. We certainly appreciate you listening in, and uh, yeah, and I'll I'll try to uh, come up with something 
to share next week that will whatever cover for me for the next year i don't know <laughs> if anyone has any pressing any pressing topics that you think uh you want to hear at a last show uh let me know cool uh already and you know regardless keep those questions coming uh we love we love getting good questions if you've got an idea please drop by the cycling independent and put a suggestion in the comments we hope you've enjoyed the show and if you have please leave us a good review on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts it makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with Patria Vandermark. Thanks for listening to The Paceline.